please be seated. One of the things that we're hoping to accomplish in this sermon series is to show that baptism has ancient roots. It's not something that started with the church. In fact, the tradition itself didn't even start with John the Baptist. But John, who was a scholar of the Old Testament, his Bible, looked at the Bible and, and looked at his current situation and, and filled with the Holy Spirit, went to declare a need for a baptism of repentance. And, and the tradition that he drew upon was ancient. Last week, we saw that the roots of baptism began with the flood, that as early as Genesis 6... God is laying down the foundation for what Christian baptism is all about. Today we're going to see that another very important plank in understanding a biblical theology of baptism is when Israel crossed through the Red Sea. Let's take a look at the typology from last week very quickly. So last week we said that there's something about Christian baptism that is like the flood in the days of Noah. In both, there's a warning of coming judgment. In Noah's day, the, the judgment was a flood that was going to come and, and cover the earth. And unless you're in the ark, you're going to perish in the flood. And so God proclaimed for 120 years or so a coming judgment against the sin of the world. He also called Noah to build an ark. And anyone who was in the ark, whether it was Noah, his wife, or his sons and their wives, or the animals, were safe from the judgment of God. So God created this space of preservation. He saved them and brought them through his judgment. So the flood itself is the judgment, and all but eight died. This corresponds to our baptism, Peter says. Because we, though we don't get into a physical ark, a boat, or a barge, we step into Christ by faith. And there is a coming judgment. It'll be a judgment of fire when God will condemn every sin in the history of the world. And you are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. If you are in Christ, then you will come safely through the judgment of fire. If you are not in Christ, then you will perish. After this final judgment, Revelation 21 and 22, this is how our Bible ends. We're told there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, a new universe. And God himself will come down. No longer will heaven and creation be separate places, but heaven will come down to earth. And God will come down to this new earth and dwell with us. And we, like Noah, who got out of the ark on the Mount of Ararat and looked around at the new earth that had been formed, we will come out with Christ into the new heavens and the new earth, and we will live forever with Christ. And, and so baptism is a declaration that I choose to be in Christ. And I am trusting that as I am united with Christ, as I am in Christ, I will come through the final judgment into eternal life. So when we are being baptized, that's what we are declaring. Now this morning's text doesn't make much sense unless we understand a second 
typology. And we've gone over typology. Typology is a picture of something, right? These are matters of, of Christian doctrine that are prefigured in the Old Testament, much like a blueprint and a building. So the typology is the blueprint. It's two-dimensional. The building is the gospel. It's three-dimensional. And so there's something about the way God... Uh, unfolded history and wrote his scriptures to give us an indication of the gospel in the past. And so before we get into the text, I want to just lay out this typology of baptism that has to do with the Red Sea. And then we'll get into the text and see the way in which Paul uses it. So every typology has three parts to it. Now, if you've been here, most of you have been here for, for all of this, uh, then you'll know that these three parts are points of correspondence. There's something the same. So example, the ark is the same as Christ because it's in the ark that you come through the judgment. So there's these points of correspondence between the Old Testament picture and the reality of the gospel that is in Christ. Then in Christ, we see an escalation. There's something more significant about the reality in Christ. So, so with Noah... Right? We saw that the flood destroyed a generation. The escalation is that the final judgment will destroy everyone who has ever lived. They'll be condemned to hell unless you're found in Christ. There's escalation. It's, it's more serious. It's more glorious. And then every typology has a shared vision. God is trying to communicate something the same so in, in Noah and the flood, this shared vision was that judgment is coming. Seek God's grace for safety and security through that final judgment and come out on the other side. That's exactly what we see in the gospel. God's judgment is coming. Seek God's safety and security in his grace in Christ. Come through the judgment and out the other side. That's the vision for both the flood and the final judgment. So, so what are these three things? Points of correspondence, escalation, and vision when it comes to the Red Sea. Well, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll remember the narrative. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. That's the first point of correspondence, and we'll talk about uh, how it links to the gospel when we get to escalation. So there's, there's this, in, within the narrative itself, God's people are enslaved but then God sends them a deliverer, and through many miraculous wonders, and ultimately in the Passover, when every household takes the blood of a lamb and puts the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and lintels, then when the destroyer comes in, the, the, the angel of death will pass over that house. That broke Pharaoh, broke his back, his stubbornness. He says, we cannot contend with this kind of opposition anymore. Go and worship your God. That's the second part of correspondence. Third part, Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt and they come to the Red Sea. But then Pharaoh's army comes running after them in all of their chariots. This is the most powerful army on the face of the earth at the time and wants to destroy them because Pharaoh had changed his mind and they feel trapped. But what God does is he separates the waters for them and they pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. They pass through the waters. They were slaves on this side of the Red Sea. They're free on the other side of the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army pursues after them, but the waters crash down on them. And it's a great military victory for God as the most powerful army in the world is destroyed by the waters of the Red Sea. Finally, as I already said, 
after all is said and done, you have a nation of two million people on the other side of the, the Red Sea who are finally free. Now, as I was just going through that narrative, because we've gone through typology so much, are you beginning to hear the gospel? Even without me talking to you about the points of escalation, has the Holy Spirit been working in you to help you to see this is not just a historical text. It is. This happened in real space and time. But it happened because God was teaching us through history and through Scripture about the gospel. And do you see where baptism is in that Old Testament history? Let's talk about this escalation. We start with slavery. Uh, We're not enslaved in Egypt, are we? But we are all born into this world slaves. We are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to the devil. And both sin and the devil, which work their, their mastery over us in death, are cruel taskmasters. You see the escalation? Slavery in Egypt is nothing compared to slavery to sin and the devil. But God sent forth a deliverer, not Moses. The law came through Moses, and John continues, but grace and what? Truth came through Jesus Christ. So you see the correspondence between Moses and Jesus. Jesus is the deliverer who will lead us out of our bondage to sin. And in his life, did he not showcase his power and the power of God through many miraculous acts? just as those nine plagues, and the the ultimate act that broke the back of sin and the devil was what? The death of the Lamb of God on the cross, and that corresponds to Passover. That we don't take a lamb and put the blood of lamb on our houses. We take the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, and we apply that blood to our lives by faith. So when the angel of death comes to condemn, he passes over us. This too is pointing forward to the final judgment, right? At the final judgment, when we stand before God, why would God grant us entrance into eternal life? Why would he grant us freedom from sin and the devil at the final judgment? Why? Because we're good? Because we're better than the rest? No. Likewise, Israel wasn't necessarily better than Egypt. It's because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. And the judgment will pass over us. Now notice that all of the gospel, this is where we kind of stop with the gospel, right? This is where we stop. We've been delivered from slavery to sin. What's next? Well, the deliverer led the people out toward the promised land. And once we're saved in Christ, he is leading us through life to the promised land, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Now, on the way, we have our own Red Sea and we have our own wilderness. So we are now at the Red Sea. And isn't it funny, once you are saved, who is it and what is it that, that chases after you, not content to let you go? Is it not sin? Is it not the devil? Yes, we've been made new. We've been, we've been created in Christ to be new creatures. Our hearts have been circumcised. We have a new nature that always desires righteousness, always desires holiness. And in our hearts, at the center of our soul, we are. That's, that's a doctrine of regeneration. 
But do we not have a lingering sin nature that chases after us just like the Egyptian army was chasing after these liberated slaves? Trying to make some claim on their life? We do. We have a a lingering sin nature. And just as Egypt was the most powerful army in the world, the sin nature can be strong at times. Don't we have a pharaoh of our own that we're running from? Satan himself and all of his demonic horde who's not content to let us go? This is where baptism comes in the narrative, if you notice. You notice that that baptism isn't a means of salvation. It doesn't start at the beginning of, of their covenant with God, but it's after they've applied the blood of Jesus Christ to their lives, after they've been saved. This is a believer's baptism. And here we are, liberated with our sin nature and the devil and demons chasing after us, not content to let us go. And what Jesus bids us do is pass through the waters. Pass through the waters. They're already saved before they pass through the Red Sea. The Red Sea is their baptism. It marks the deliverance that had already taken place at Passover. So they cross through the Red Sea, and we cross through the Red Sea. And what's, what is so awesome about the Red Sea in this picture of the Christian life? We come through the waters. But who and what does not? Sin is drowned. Satan is drowned. The demons are drowned. They can't touch us. We have... We have a body of water between us and them. And so it should be for us. Now, you might say, but okay, I've been baptized. I still have a sin nature. And sometimes I still feel spiritual oppression. And doesn't Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are not engaged in war against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers? Yes and yes. And so there is something anticipatory, right? And yet, there's also something very pastoral in baptism. Remember that sin would have no power over you. Sin would have no power over me. We can choose obedience. Remember that the one who has delivered you from slavery is greater than the one that is in the world. Now, this will be brought to its consummation at the return of Christ. But even still, baptism serves a very powerful pastoral function we were slaves then we applied the blood of the lamb to our lives by faith we passed through baptism and now we're free now read Romans 6 and 7 in light of that we're free don't don't then submit your members this is Paul speaking to us not me speaking to you do not submit your members to sin but submit them to God for righteousness sake. Those are the escalation. What's the vision here? Well, as slaves, Israel was powerless to free itself, to free herself or themselves from, from the power of Egypt. There's, there's no way that the slaves in their own strength could have had an uprising that could have secured their liberty. Likewise, when we are born into this world enslaved to sin, we cannot free ourselves. Our master is too strong for us, sin and the devil. But 
God is more powerful than Egypt. God is more powerful than Egypt. God is more powerful than sin. God is more powerful than the devil. And he delivers us from our slavery by his power. And so we are completely dependent on him. And it's always an act of grace. God didn't look at the Israelites and say, ah, you are actually quite righteous in your slavery. Therefore, I will deliver you. He heard their groaning, yes. But he did it for his own name's sake. And he delivered them out of their slavery and he purchased a people for himself. And this, what does he say in Deuteronomy 9? When I take you into the land, the promised land, I delivered you from slavery, I'm taking you to the land. Never for a moment think that it's because I saw your righteousness. I did not look down and say, here is a more righteous people, but I made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will keep my word. So it is with us. He saves us by his power. We are totally dependent. We are very, very needy. Rest, though, in his power. Then, we're still in theological vision, notice that God marks this deliverance. He saves them entirely by grace through faith. Well, where's the faith? Anyone who put the blood of the Passover lamb was exercising faith. He, he saved them entirely by grace through faith. And then he marks that deliverance with a baptism. And, and the sequence is so important. I'll deliver you by grace through faith. And I want you to mark that baptism or mark that deliverance with baptism. Believer's baptism. See, the, the tradition of of baptism is not circumcision that starts when you're born. It's, it's a believer's baptism after you've been saved, after you've been delivered, after you've applied the blood of the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, to your life. Then you mark that liberation with baptism. On the other side of baptism, Israel enjoyed their freedom. I know their wilderness wanderings were not enjoyable, but they weren't slaves. It's interesting, if we want to follow this picture of the gospel forward, many, many times the, the freed slaves said, I would rather be a slave in Egypt than to be free with you in the wilderness, O God. I hear that in my own heart sometimes, or in my own flesh, I should say. I hear that in my own flesh sometimes. Maybe you've heard it in your own flesh. Why do we want to go back to Egypt? Likewise, we were slaves, but now we're free. So that's the picture. That, that's the typology of baptism. Now, Paul presumes that knowledge in the preaching text. So all of that is just foundational for the preaching text itself. Um. Let's just summarize where we've been over the last two weeks, though. Thus far, we can make two theological conclusions about baptism. So last week, we were talking about Noah and the flood. And what can we conclude about baptism from Noah and the flood? Well, we can note that baptism signifies our salvation in Christ through the final judgment. So when we submit to believers' baptism, what we are saying is that I am stepping into Christ and I am secure in Christ for the final judgment. I will come through the final judgment. And I will come out on the other side. 
Not because I'm good, but because I'm in Christ. That's what we declare in baptism. In, in order to make a statement like that, it has to be believer's baptism. Today, what we're saying theologically about baptism through Moses is that baptism signifies our freedom in Christ from slavery to sin and the devil. So, so when we are being baptized, not only are we saying, I will come through the final judgment, we are also saying, I have been saved, I have been liberated from my slavery to sin. I am no longer a, sin, a slave to sin. I am no longer a slave to the devil. I am free. So you see, it's so important then, and we're going to get to this when we get to Jesus' baptism. Jesus knew all this when he was being baptized, and he's declaring these things about himself and about those who join themselves to him. This is what John the Baptist was getting at, and we'll, we'll see that in a couple weeks' time. Now, the way in which the New Testament applies these theological truths, um, it's a bit surprising. Last week, remember, last week was all about baptism signifying our salvation through the final judgment. Last week, we saw that Peter applied Noah's baptism to encourage the church to suffer with Christ. Basically, what Peter says, if you know that you are secure through the final judgment that great suffering of condemnation at the end of the age, then be willing and ready to suffer now. Step into Christ and suffer with him, knowing that you are safe for the final judgment. This week, we'll see that the pastoral use of baptism by Paul is that Paul appeals to Israel's baptism through the Red Sea. He calls it the baptism into Moses to encourage the church to obey Jesus Christ. Now you see the heavy lifting that baptism does pastorally. Uh, Peter says, by your baptism, remember that you've said, I'm ready to suffer with Christ. Now Paul says, through your baptism, remember that you've said that you have chosen to submit yourself to obedience to Christ. Let's take another look at today's preaching text. Before we do the context... Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. Why, why was Paul writing to the Corinthian church? It's because they weren't acting like Christians. The Corinthian church was a mess, and, and that can be some encouragement to us, right? I mean, it's not as though the church was out at this great zenith of perfection during the biblical time, the apostolic age, and then we'd just sort of fallen off at the, at the end. The church has always been kind of a messy place to be. And so I take great comfort and encouragement from that. But Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because their behavior did not reflect the things that they professed to believe. And Paul is saying, there's a disconnect. You say that you believe this, but, but your life doesn't show that you believe this. Their lifestyle was not consistent with the gospel. And these are some of the things that Paul addresses in the letter. He says, look, there's divisions in the church regarding the leadership. We have one leader in the church, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has servants. Paul says, I'm, I'm one of those servants. I planted the church. But Apollos, who took over for me, 
He's also the servant of Christ. You can't have favorites between Paul and Apollos because both of us serve Christ. I planted Apollos' water. God gives the growth. That's interesting, isn't it? We, we do have favorites in leadership in the church today. Paul goes on and he says, sexual immorality has no place in a church purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't you know that your body is not your own? You're united with Christ. Would you unite him with a prostitute? Thirdly, I hear that you're suing one another and taking one another to court. It doesn't make any sense in light of the gospel. You've all been forgiven so much. And so you would take your brother or your sister, you take them to a pagan judge to judge over you? What kind of witness is that in the world? There's a lot of confusion, fourthly, about Christian marriage. Can we get married? Should we get married? Can't we get married? What, what, how ought we to behave in marriage? Does my body belong to me or to my spouse, etc., etc.? What about those who have been divorced? And Paul just applies the gospel to all of those situations. Fifth, there's disputes about food and Idol worship. Can we eat food that's been sacrificed to, to idols or not? And what foods can we eat and can't we eat? And Paul says, look, you, you, got, you church, you Corinthian church, I love you. But you're a mess. Paul then in chapter 9 puts himself forward as an example. And he says, look, look at my life. I've taken the things that I believe, says Paul. And I've applied them to my life, and I want you to be as I am. Let's take a look at the immediate context to our preaching text. That's the macro context. Just open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read from verse 24 through 27. That's the end of the chapter. Right up, that's right leading into our preaching text. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now that last verse is very convicting for a preacher, at least it should be. But this whole text, this whole letter to the Corinthians ought to be very convicting to all of us. Uh, is it not true that there are times when we run maybe a little bit aimlessly? But Paul says that's, that's not the way to go. And, and so we have another illustration. We have an illustration here where he says, run the race. What does it mean to run the race? Well, running the race is the Christian life. Once you're saved, you basically have put yourself at the starting line, and the gun goes off, and you start running the race. And the race is the Christian life. He says, if you're going to be uh, called by the name of Christian, if you're going to say that you belong to Christ, then run the race of the Christian life. He says, look, not everyone who sets out to run the race wins the prize. What is the prize? Salvation in Christ. It's actually crossing the finish line. 
It's eternal life. This is very sobering. Let me just translate to you what Paul is saying. Say, not everyone in the Corinthian church, and by extension, not everyone in the visible church, will finish. Not everyone will receive the prize. That there are many self-professed Christians who aren't really Christians. And it's a very stern warning. He says, listen, if you, if you take this seriously, you need to run the race. And don't run it aimlessly all over the place. You know what you believe. Now apply those beliefs to your life. Run the race in such a way as to receive the prize. And, and he says, I'm, I have a very intentional life. I take the truths that I know and I apply them to my life and I live them out. And then he switches metaphors from a race to boxing. He says, I'm a, if I was a boxer, I don't box as one beating the air. I don't just go around punching the air aimlessly, but I train myself because I know that one day I'm going to stand against a physical flesh and blood opponent. So I train myself so I'm ready for the fight. Otherwise, what? I will get knocked out. That's the image. If I don't train diligently, and, and how do you train diligently? You take the things that you believe and you say, how ought this impact the way I live my life? If I don't do that, then I will get knocked out. So, so run the race to finish. If you finish, you'll receive the prize, which is resurrection from the dead unto eternal life. Train for a boxing match so that you don't get knocked out. What is, what is it if you don't get knocked out? It's eternal life in Jesus Christ. Being knocked out or not finishing the race is akin to not being a Christian, not receiving eternal life. So the Christian life requires self-control, self-discipline. In other words, if you belong to Christ, make every effort to live for him. That's what Paul's saying. Make every effort to live for him. Now with all that, so a lot of prep, right, for this, but so we now, we understand the picture of baptism through the Red Sea. Now we understand the context of the preaching text in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now with all of that, let's go back and look at the text. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 6. For... I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, that's a scary word, verse five, nevertheless, so they were baptized and they ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual water. They were delivered from slavery. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. How many of them fell in the wilderness? With how many of them was God not pleased? Well, we know there were some 2 million slaves that came out. We know that there was just a little over 600,000 adult men. 
So the ratio is some, somewhere between 600,000 who were delivered, because we're going to, Paul's really referring to the men. How many of the 600,000 men went into the promised land? Two. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Some 600,000. They were overthrown in the wilderness. That is, they died in the wilderness. They did not enter into the promised land. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This preaching text starts with a word. Look at verse 1. For. This is a major transition in this part of the book of Corinthians. With this word for is connecting our preaching text and what follows with chapters 1 through 9. Specifically 1 through 8, this is all that you're doing wrong. You say you believe in Jesus Christ. You say that he's your, your Savior. And if your Savior, your Lord. And yet your life doesn't look like he's your Savior and your Lord. That's 1 to 8. So this one word for is connecting us back to chapters 1 to 8. It's also connecting us back to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, Paul sets himself up, as I said, as an alternative to the Corinthian example. So you're doing this. We believe the same things, apparently, says Paul. But your life looks like this. My life looks like that. And you really ought to imitate me as I imitate Christ. The Corinthians demonstrated great inconsistencies between their lifestyle and the gospel. Paul, for all of his imperfections and enduring sinfulness, he, he is basically saying there is a great consistency between my lifestyle and the gospel that I believe. Paul is here with this one word, for, and then continuing, introducing a very difficult warning, but a loving warning, right? It's loving to, to issue these warnings. No use these Corinthians getting to the end of their life and finding out that they're not saved and they perish as their forefathers did in the wilderness. So it's loving, but it's not easy to receive. But this is what Paul is saying. If the Corinthians continue in their disobedient lifestyle, then they have very little reason to be confident in their salvation. If, if they continue to live the way they are, there's no reason that they should be confident that they're going to be saved at the final judgment or that they have been freed from sin at all. There's no evidence of it. Now, Paul then proceeds in this text. He expects certain objections. The first one is this. The Corinthians might say, but Paul, we, we heard your preaching of the gospel. We responded to your preaching of the gospel, and we were baptized. Doesn't our baptism prove that we are saved? Doesn't our baptism secure us for that final judgment? Doesn't our baptism free us? from our slavery? Doesn't our baptism give us certain liberties and freedoms in Christ? And Paul says something like this, yes, but I don't want you to forget that Israel was also 
baptized. Don't be unaware. Know your scriptures. Our forefathers were under the cloud. What does that mean? Our forefathers were, they saw the manifest glory of God in a pillar of fire lead them out of slavery and hold back the Egyptian army. They saw the waters part and they passed through the waters. They saw the the miraculous power of God and if anyone had reason to be confident in their freedom, it ought to have been these Israelites. Look, they passed through the sea. They saw it with their own eyes. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. A fantastic thing happened to them. That's as far as Paul goes in in looking back on baptism. He'll continue. He says, nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased. Second illustration, which we're not going to get into very much today, but I just want to note it for you. The second objection is, but Paul, we share in the Lord's Supper regularly. Surely that secures the grace of God in our lives. And we know if we just read another chapter or two, right? I don't commend you in the way that you partake in the Lord's Supper. But even here, he's beginning to say that that itself is not sufficient. Do not have a false confidence in your baptism or in your share in the Lord's table, Paul says. Yes, I want you to remember our same forefathers. Not only were they baptized into Moses, not only were they baptized by the Shekinah glory of God and the Red Sea waters that were parted, but they ate spiritual food, manna which is a picture of Christ, which we don't have time to get into, the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. And Israel drank the same spiritual drink, water from the rock, which we see explicitly in our text that the rock was Christ typologically. So so you had these same Israelites who were eating Christ figuratively and drinking Christ figuratively. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They perished in the wilderness. Therefore, says Paul to the Corinthians, do not for a moment rest secure in your baptism or in your share of the Lord's Supper. Do not for a moment think that baptism or the Lord's table saves you. And isn't this the... the, the error that the Roman Catholic Church has fallen into. We're going to receive grace through the means of sacraments, baptism being one, the Lord's table, or, or communion being the other. And don't they say that by being baptized, they're regenerated, uh, the original sin is washed off of them? And don't they say that by taking the Lord's table, that they're actually eating Jesus Christ and that they're receiving in the eating and the drinking actual a dispensation of God's grace? And don't they say that they have to continually do that in order to stay topped up in the grace of God? I don't know what they do with this text. So, so also claimed the Corinthians. Paul, Peter says, or Paul says, neither baptism nor the Lord's table 
dispenses grace. Neither having been baptized or sharing the Lord's table is evidence of a true regeneration, a true salvation. Israel's baptism did not deliver them, most of them, safely into the promised land. Israel's eating of manna and drinking of water from the rock did not deliver them safely into the promised land. Thus, if there is no evidence of salvation in the way you live your lives, O Corinthians, then baptism and the Lord's table are of no benefit to you. Put it another way, if you are truly free in Christ, right? Because this is the driving metaphor for baptism in the Red Sea, this transfer from slavery to freedom. If you're truly free, O Corinthians, are you acting as though you are still slaves to sin? Doesn't make sense. If you're truly free, you don't act like a slave. Now, this is a sobering rebuke to the Corinthians. It's loving, but it's sobering. It's hard to receive this kind of a rebuke. When somebody stands up and says, you might not be saved because I don't see evidence of it in your life. And don't point to baptism in the Lord's table when there's no acts of obedience in your life. When you haven't taken the things that you believe and allow them to impact your behavior. This is a sobering rebuke also then to us. It's a dangerous posture when we coast through life expecting past commitments, past confessions of faith, or current religious rituals to secure our freedom in Christ and eternal life. I'll just give you some examples of this. Um, Maybe you've heard it said, well, my son or daughter made a profession of faith and said the sinner's prayer when they were four, so I know that they're fine. They're safe. They're going to heaven. Maybe, hopefully. But a profession of faith is the beginning of the outworking of salvation. And if that child has truly been saved, we'll see not perfection, but incremental growth. And I, I say this not to, it's a wonderful thing. I, I can't wait or I hope for all of us, for our children at a young age to profess belief in Christ. That's not something to, to mock or to sneer at. It's wonderful and it's, it's beautiful. And let's hope for that early in the lives of our children. But then let's shepherd them as they grow. Disciple them. Let's not just allow them or ourselves to coast Maybe, maybe the same thing could be said, well, when I was 30, I said the sinner's prayer, so now I'm going to go about my life as I always have. Same problem. And so you get, you know, I was saved by grace through faith, therefore I can continue getting drunk. I was saved by grace through faith, so I'm going to continue gossiping. I'm not going to watch my mouth or the things that I say. Uh, I was saved by grace through faith. Jesus did it all. So I'm going to make material success and riches in this life my primary ambition. Uh, I was saved by grace through faith. So I'm going to indulge all of my current insecurities. I'm not going to uh, seek after my identity in Jesus Christ. Uh, I was saved by grace through faith. Therefore, I'm going to look at inappropriate things on the internet. 
or in, on television. Because I'm, I'm saved. I have that freedom in Christ. It's not what I do. It's what Christ has done. So I can look at whatever I want. I can fill my mind and my, uh, my, my thoughts with all kinds of images. I was saved by grace through faith. So I'm going to covet someone else's life on social media. And I'm going to just troll them. I'm going to follow them. And I'm going to wish I was them. And I say, I wish that God had made me them and not myself. I'm saved by grace through faith, so I'm going to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. I was saved by grace through faith, so I'm going to eat too much, or I'm not going to eat enough. I was saved by grace through faith, so I'm not going to ask God, what's next? What's the next thing that I need to change? I need a break from this thing called progressive sanctification. I was saved by grace through faith, so I don't need to keep growing in holy living. I was saved by grace through faith, so I don't need to rack my brain to understand the details of the Bible. I get the basics. Jesus came, died in my place, rose again. I'm safe. Don't, don't get into Zephaniah with me, please. I was saved by grace through faith, so I don't need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. This is, this is what Paul's getting at. And what he's saying is, remember your baptism. Remember the baptism of Israel. Neither baptism secured anything if there's not true salvation and regeneration. And the evidence of true regeneration and salvation is a changed life, increasing obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, before we close, I can't close the sermon here. Why not? We're at a very dangerous point. If you've kind of tuned out through that list of things that I just read, if you've tuned out at all, this is a dangerous point to tune out. Why? What, what might this sound like? This might sound like I'm preaching a false gospel, right? Do you see that? It might sound like I'm saying you've got to do certain things in order to earn God's favor. Or it might sound like I'm saying you have to do certain things in order to maintain God's favor. This is why this is so dangerous to preach. And yet that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what I am preaching. Can we earn or maintain God's favor by the things that we do? No. Salvation is entirely by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, not in our own works. It's a gift, excuse me, it's a gift of God. It's not our own doing, so that none of us can boast. Oh, hold on a minute. That doesn't sound like what you just said. How, how do we put these two things together? Saved people live differently than unsaved people. It's not about earning God's favor. It's not about maintaining God's favor. It's about seeing in yourself and in one another evidence of a true salvation. Because with salvation, with freedom from our slavery to sin, comes an additional promise by God, which is this, that He will change us. He will regenerate us. He will give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. 
Now, now in Israel's day, in Moses' generation, apart from Joshua and Caleb, Israel did not respond properly to the gracious deliverance of God. But it was all about response. Their salvation was entirely by grace through faith, through God's work. But there were two men who looked at what God had done, had done and they said, this just compels us to respond in worship. It, it creates in me faith and faithfulness. That's exactly what Joshua and Caleb said. They went into the promised land like all the ten other spies that came back. And the other spies says, well, the, the people are too big. The walls are too high. There's too many of them. We cannot possibly take the land. And Joshua and Caleb, they, they didn't do anything to maintain God's favor. But they said, well, hold on a minute. Were you not here? When God liberated us from Egypt? Were you not with us when we were baptized in the Shekinah glory of God and passed through the Red Sea? If God can do that, then he can surely take us into the land that he has promised us. So it's just a rational connection between what God has done for us already and what God promises to do. And in between is what is our right response? saved people who have truly wrestled with and received the grace of God will live differently. Just like the majority of Israel, there are many in the universal church who do not respond properly to the gracious deliverance of God. So the question is for us, what has God done in your life? How did he do it? Well, through Jesus Christ, through the active ministry of the Holy Spirit. What has God promised to give you at the end? How does that change the way you live right now? It's not about earning God's favor. It's about being consistent. It's allowing the things that we believe to have their proper impact on the way we behave. Just a little side note, and this should be frightful for all of us. In Genesis 6 through 9, eight people out of the population of the whole world were saved. In today's illustration or picture of baptism, two out of 600,000 were saved. And that, as a pastor, makes me tremble. For the church, for the universal church, but for this church. Look, I, I want as a pastor to lead and shepherd the sheep that God has put under my charge safely into the land that God has promised. Which means as a shepherd who loves you, I need to warn you. And you say, look, take an inventory. Is there evidence in your life that you're saved? And yes, you're going to struggle with sin. We're going to get to that. That'll be our last question. But have you grown? And I, I say this a lot, and I'll probably say it many times a year uh, here. If you don't know what God is working on in your life right now, that's a dangerous place to be. It means you're running aimlessly, as Paul put it. What aspect of your life has God brought to a point of conviction in your heart where you say, I need to change this. 
And as long as we're drawing breath, there should always be something. Something. And don't do a lot of things at once. Don't overwhelm yourself. I'm not trying to put a burden on you that's too heavy to bear. Just one thing. Prayerfully and with the help of others, let's work through that thing. And then another really good way to take an inventory is how have you changed since this time last year? Right? We're coming up to another fall. Are you a different person? You're like, ah, not really. Well, what about five years? How have you changed in five years? If you're saved, there should be some change. There should be some evidence. How about 10 years? If you can get to the 10-year mark and say, you know, I'm basically the same person I was as I was in 2007, you just really need to get face-to-face with God and just pour your heart out. We need to be a changing people. Which brings me to the last question. Does this mean then that we have to be perfect before we're baptized? I think that's another danger in in hearing what I'm trying to say is, oh, well, I I don't want to get baptized then. I'm I'm not ready for this this life of obedience. I'm not perfect enough to be baptized. And that's entirely not the point that we're trying to make here. Uh, We do not expect babies to perform at the same capacity as adults, right, just in, in regular life. We don't expect a newborn to do the same things that we expect a 30-year-old man to do. So it is in the Christian life. We don't expect new believers to be able to perform uh, anything that is similar to someone who is maturing Christ. And there is increasing patience and graciousness and mercy the younger you are in the faith just as it is in our regular lives. So, so we don't want to put too big a burden on you. We don't want to give you steak to chew on. We just want to feed you milk. But at the beginning of your Christian walk, we are asking you to be baptized. Once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, be baptism. Or, sorry, be baptism. Be baptized. Let me just add to this illustration. When toddlers are learning to walk, they're very unstable, aren't they? They stumble and they fall. Same in the Christian life. You're just sort of getting, you're new at this. You're trying to get your legs about you. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. And you know what parents do? The little toddler with their little hands grabs up and holds two fingers. And they walk. And the parents just walk behind them, helping them to walk. And, oh, we'll take one finger away. Oh, you fell over. Let's pick you up. Right? Right? And when a toddler walks for the first time, it's not pretty, but parents, especially for a first child, if they have a camera, they they try to capture it on, on, on their camera. So it is in the Christian walk. And let's be honest, hopefully, you know, every athlete started off as a toddler that was learning to walk. So the goal is to grow up. But but we as who are mature in the faith, we're not we're not here to judge the immature and the young. We're here to offer you our fingers and to walk with you and to encourage you and to help you. So we're not looking for perfection. Far from it. Baptism is not a declaration of perfect obedience. But baptism is a declaration 
So if I was to be baptized, this is what I'm declaring. If you are to be baptized, this is what you are declaring. I desire to be increasingly obedient to Jesus Christ every day of my life. Now, I know that some days you go backward and some, some days you go forward, but over time, you see increasing obedience. There's much grace here at South Shore for new believers, for spiritual babies and spiritual toddlers to fall down a lot in their attempt to walk. And even the elderly fall from time to time. However, we do not want to be a church that is a spiritual nursery, changing the diapers of spiritual babies forever. Just like parents, they'll change diapers in love but there comes a time where it's time to be trained. So it is at Shore. We want to progress you forward. Now, the church will always be a nursery for new believers. We always want Christians in so-called spiritual diapers. But we don't want the same Christians in those diapers year after year, decade after decade. The church... We'll always have new believers, but saved people must outgrow the nursery. That's what Paul is saying. That's what baptism about is about. We are nothing without grace. We're not looking for anyone to earn God's favor or to maintain God's favor or to put on a facade to earn one another's favor in the church. We need to be raw and honest and authentic with one another. We're all going to fall down and sin. Yes, there is much grace for each of us here in this church. But if we truly belong to Christ, let us remember our baptism. And when we were baptized, we declared to the world that we wanted to obey Christ. Baptism is this pivotal moment when a saint declares his or her imperfect yet ever-growing obedience to their Savior, who is also their Lord, Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this illustration, this typology of baptism that was written down for our example. And we take seriously Paul's warning to the Corinthians as your warning to us here that there must be evidences of salvation in our life. We do not want to run aimlessly. We do not want to box as if beating the air. But we want to be intentional and purposeful to run the race in order to win the prize and to fight the fight without being knocked out. Lord, I pray for this church that you would help us to, to be a, a people who remembers our baptism that we make a decision that we're ready to suffer with Christ and we declare that we desire to be obedient to Jesus. Lord, help us in our weaknesses in the name of Jesus Christ who has done it all. Amen.